0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible this morning, just slip your hand up and one of our ushers will bring one to you. And if you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take that Bible home with you. It's a gift uh, from us to you. I've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke, this, this um, book of facts about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're now in Luke, chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 1 uh, all the way through verse 19. Luke chapter 20, uh, verses 1 to 19. Let's pray before we read. Father, we thank you uh, for another beautiful morning that you've given to us. We thank you, Father, for the word you've given to us. Uh, Lord, we believe that this word teaches us about you as creator and about you as redeemer. Uh, Father, we would be lost without the knowledge we find in this Word, and yet we recognize that apart from your Holy Spirit opening our hearts to understand this Word, we will get nothing from it. So Father, we ask you now in the name of Jesus, will you send your Spirit, will you enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might see and understand uh, you in your Word. We thank you for it now in the name of Jesus, amen. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruits of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him." The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Amen. At this point in the book of Luke, Jesus is now in the middle of what we call Passion Week. The week of his suffering. This is a week when Jesus will be crucified. In the passage right before this, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a Sunday. The events of this chapter then, chapter 20, probably occurred on the following Tuesday. And in just three days' time now, on Friday, Jesus will be crucified. This is Passion Week. And man, things are escalating very quickly here toward the crucifixion of Jesus. In Luke 19.47, Luke said that the Jewish leaders were now actively seeking to destroy Jesus. And now here in Luke 20, we see several different very intense clashes or controversies between Jesus and the religious leaders. The leaders try repeatedly in this chapter to trap Jesus, to to trick him and, and come up with some reason to kill him. And Jesus responds with some very subtle traps of his own, repeatedly silencing the leaders and exposing them as hypocrites, which just infuriates them all the more. Daryl Box says that we see here in this chapter a theological warfare in its most dramatic form. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, Jesus and the religious leaders, they, they clash over one primary topic in particular. The authority of Jesus. There are two main parts to this passage here. And the first thing we see here is a question Regarding Jesus' authority. Luke says in verse 1 that Jesus was teaching people in the temple and preaching the gospel to them. Probably a large crowd here in the temple, and some chief priests, scribes, and elders came up, approached Jesus, and commanded him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And the leaders there were were probably talking about a, a couple of things. One, his teaching. Who gave you the authority, Jesus, to teach the things you teach? Jesus has been teaching all over Israel for the past several years. He's now teaching daily in the temple during Passion Week. And they want to know who gave him the authority to do it. Most Jewish rabbis back then, they went through some sort of official ordination process. And the Jewish leadership would then formally authorize them to teach. And they want to know who gave Jesus the authority to teach. But I think they also probably want to know here who gave Jesus the authority to ransack the temple the end of Luke 19, Jesus entered the temple. He found the religious leaders there doing all kinds of different dishonest business. And Jesus then absolutely cleaned house. He turned over tables. He he knocked over animal cages. Money flying everywhere. And I guarantee the religious leaders are now ticked at Jesus. Who gave you, Jesus, the authority to come into this temple... In which we are in charge and destroy the place. Who gave you the authority to do these things? Jesus. And their question is a trap for Jesus. These guys are probably prepared to refute any answer that he might give. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses who come to your door. They've been grilled, they're ready, they think to refute any answer you might give. And that's these men. If Jesus says his authority came from heaven, from God, well, they'll probably charge him in front of this crowd here with blasphemy, a man falsely claiming to be sent from God. And if Jesus says his authority came from man, if his authority came from some men outside of the official Jewish leadership, or if he's acting on his own authority, well, they'll accuse him of being some crazy renegade maverick who needs to be Silenced. There is no safe answer here for Jesus. This appears to be a no-win situation. So what does Jesus do? He asks them a question. <laughs> Jesus was the master of answering a question with a counter-question. And here he goes. Before I answer your question, religious leaders, you answer mine. And Matthew 21 indicates what was going on there as Jesus was saying, if you answer my question, I will answer yours. If you won't answer my question, I will not answer yours. And here's my question for you, verse 3, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? You want to know where I get my authority? Where did John get his authority? John the Baptist was a very important figure in the early chapters of the book of Luke. John was the forerunner for Jesus. John paved the way for Jesus. Luke 3, the people of Israel flocked out into the wilderness to hear John preach. John would call them to repent of their sins, to turn away from their sins. And the people who did repent, John would baptize them, a baptism of repentance. And here's the thing about John. The Jewish leadership never formally authorized him to do that stuff. (laughs) He just went out in the wilderness and started doing it. Started preaching, calling people to repentance, started baptizing. And here's the thing, loads of people there in Israel were baptized by John. Loads. They believed he was a true prophet from God. Believed his baptism was from heaven and they repented and they were baptized. No formal credentials maybe, but they believed he was a prophet from God. But the Jewish religious leaders rejected John's baptism. They didn't see any need to repent, refuse to be baptized. They thought John's baptism was not from heaven. It was actually from men. And so Jesus asked them about it here. In front of all of these people, most of whom had probably been baptized by John. You want to know where I get my authority? You tell me where John got his. Was his baptism from heaven or was it from man? (laughs) And Jesus, man, the master has now turned the trap back on these men. He's totally cornered them. He just gave them a multiple choice test with two possible answers they don't like either of the answers. Luke says in verse 5 that they discussed the they discussed the questions, the question with one another. You could just picture them probably huddled up together whispering while the the crowd is looking on. And whispering saying, "You know, if we say John's baptism was from heaven, it was from God, well Jesus would say, why didn't you believe him? Why why didn't you repent and submit to the baptism then?" But if if we say John's baptism was from man, these people are going to kill us because they've all, they've all been baptized. They believe John was a prophet. It's like a bad chess match for these guys. They think they have Jesus in a checkmate, man, and he moves one little pawn and he turns the tables completely. And They know that neither of the answers is a safe answer for them. This is a no-win situation for them. So they choose the middle road. (laughs) And they basically say, no comment. We don't know. We don't know where John's baptism came from. And do you know how embarrassing that would have been for them? These men were supposed to be the leaders of Israel. The religious leaders. And they don't know where John's baptism came from. We don't know embarrassing for these guys. And because they refuse to answer Jesus' question, he refuses to answer theirs. Verse 8, neither will I tell you then by what authority I do these things. That's the first thing we see here in this passage, a question concerning Jesus' uh, authority. And, and the second thing we see here is is the source of Jesus' authority. (laughs) Jesus doesn't answer these religious leaders directly here. He doesn't come right out and say explicitly where his authority came from. But Jesus does actually answer their question a little more subtly in a simple little parable. In, the, in, the, in the, the, the little parable that Jesus now goes on to teach here in this passage, in this little parable, Jesus tells this entire crowd here and all the religious leaders there where his authority came from. He gives them the source of his authority. Let's just walk through the parable here for a couple of seconds. It's in verse 9. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable, a man planted a vineyard and led it out to the tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. They also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. I'll stop there for a second. Do you realize what Jesus just did right there? Do you realize what he just did? (laughs) Jesus just gave this crowd here a very concise history of the nation of Israel. He just gave them a very concise history of the nation of Israel from its inception, from its beginning, all the way up to their current day. The vineyard in this parable here represents the nation of Israel. And the man who plants the vineyard in the parable represents God. In in a a ton of places in the Bible, the, the nation of Israel is compared to a vine or a vineyard that was planted by God. Psalm 80 verse 8 God brought a vine out of Egypt and planted it in the land of Canaan. Ezekiel 19.10, Israel was a vine planted by water. Jeremiah 2.21, God planted Israel to be a choice vine of pure seed. Isaiah 27.2, Israel was God's pleasant vineyard. And the most famous text that connects Israel with a vine or vineyard and says that it was planted by God. The most famous text is probably Isaiah chapter 5. Here it is. Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved my love song. Or, let me sing for God my love song concerning his vineyard. My, my beloved God had, had a vineyard On a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. And planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So, all kinds of texts in the Bible that compare Israel to a vine or a vineyard that was planted by God. And man, the, the, the Jewish people, in, in Jesus' day, the Jewish people, they knew, they knew that they were God's vine or vineyard. In, in the temple in Jerusalem at this time, in the very temple in which Jesus is now teaching, right here, in that temple, there was a 100-foot carved sculpture, a golden vine with fruit made of costly jewels. There's a chance that they could see it right there as Jesus was teaching, and that golden vine was a, was, a, was a daily visible picture of the nation of Israel. The Jewish people knew that they were God's vine or, or God's vineyard. <laughs> you, you think about it, this, this crowd around Jesus here, when, when they hear Jesus talk about this man who planted this vineyard, they would have recognized instantly that Jesus was talking about God and them the nation of Israel. So the vineyard in the parable is Israel. The owner of the vineyard is God. And the tenants in the parable, these tenants or these, these farmers that the owner put in charge of his vineyard, the tenants represent the religious leaders. The religious leaders throughout Israel's history The priests, the scribes, the the Pharisees, and so on. Those religious leaders, they they were like tenants in this vineyard called Israel. God had given the religious leaders the, the, the responsibility of caring for the nation of Israel. The religious leaders, they were, they were supposed to tend God's vineyard. They were supposed to nourish it and, and, and prune it. They, they were supposed to, to help God's vineyard. And they were supposed to help God's vineyard to produce fruit. That's why God originally planted this vineyard called the nation of Israel. He, he planted that vineyard so that she might then bear fruit that would glorify him. Fruits of righteousness and justice. Fruits of of love. Fruits of of worship. And, And the religious leaders, they were the tenants, the farmers, who were supposed to help God's vineyard produce those fruits. And God gave the nation and its leaders more than enough time to produce those fruits. And Jesus says in this parable here that the man planted his vineyard, he put tenants over the vineyard, and then he went into another country for a long while, simply meaning most likely that God had given the nation of Israel and its leaders plenty of time to produce good fruit, but the nation of Israel, by and large, did not produce good fruit, Now In that Isaiah 5 passage, which we just read, in that passage, Isaiah goes on to say, he says that God looked for his vineyard to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. God looked for justice, but there was bloodshed. God looked for, for love, but there was hate. God looked for worship, but there was idolatry. And, and, and it, wasn't, it wasn't just that the, the vineyard failed to produce good fruit. No, it was also that the, the tenants in the vineyard, the religious leaders in Israel, actually became hostile toward God. Jesus says there in verse 10 that when the time came for the owner to receive some fruit from his vineyard, he sent some servants to collect the fruit, But the tenants beat the owner's servants one after another. And if you look carefully at the beatings, they escalate as you go. They get worse through those three servants that Jesus gives you there. And who do those abused servants represent? Well, those are most likely the Old Testament prophets, the true prophets of God, the many men throughout Israel's history, who had very graciously been sent by God to warn the nation of Israel and its leaders, warning them over and over and over again to repent of their sins in order that they might begin to bear good fruit to God. But what did the religious leaders, what did the tenants do to the prophets of God throughout Israel's history? They rejected them. One after another, beating and even killing many of them, rejecting God's prophets, and consequently rejecting God. A hostility toward God. Man, Jesus Jesus has just He's just given this crowd here a very concise history of the nation of Israel. God planted Israel, put leaders in charge of her, expected her to bear fruit. When she didn't, God graciously sent prophet after prophet after prophet. But the leaders abused and rejected the people. So what does God do? What does he do? What does the owner of the vineyard now do here in this parable? Not what you might expect. And you might expect that God would instantly annihilate both the tenants and the fruitless vineyard. Martin Luther once said, he said, if I were God, and the world treated me as it treated him, I'd kick the wretched thing to pieces. And you'd expect here that God would kick Israel to pieces. Both the tenants and the fruitless vineyard, but he doesn't. Now look at verse 13 again. The owner of the vineyard then said, What shall I do? Here's what I'll do I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. And the beloved son in the parable is Jesus, the one and only son of the owner, the one and only son of God. You know we've we've already heard we've already heard God called Jesus his son on a couple different occasions here in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 3 at the baptism of Jesus, God spoke from heaven and said, "You are my beloved son." And then in Luke chapter 9 at the transfiguration of Jesus, God spoke again, this time from a cloud and he said, "This is my son." And now Jesus calls himself the Son, the Beloved Son, the one and only Son of God, the Son of the Owner. (laughs) And do you realize what Jesus just did by inserting himself into the parable there? Do you realize what Jesus just did? (laughs) Jesus just told everyone where his authority came from. He just told everyone the source of his authority. Where does my authority come from? Heaven. The owner sent me. (laughs) My authority is not from man, my authority is from heaven. The owner sent me. I've been sent by God, my Father, and I've been sent with all the authority of God, my Father. But Jesus knows here that, and just like the prophets that came before him, the nation of Israel and its leaders will reject him. Look at verse 14 again. Jesus says that when the tenants saw the owner's son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let's kill him. So that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And you know what Jesus just did right there? He just predicted his own death again. Staring right at the men who were going to do it. They're already talking about it. He just predicted his death. Jesus knows these religious leaders around him at this time. He knows the religious leaders all over Jerusalem. They will soon cast him out of the vineyard and kill him. And they do. Just three days now from this point in time. They will lead Jesus out of Jerusalem, outside the gate, outside the camp, as Hebrews 13 says. They will lead Jesus out of the vineyard and nail him to a cross. And and why will they do that? Well, Jesus says there in verse 14 that the tenants kill the son because they want the inheritance. Because they want the vineyard all for themselves. you You know one of the main reasons why the religious leaders killed Jesus? Greed. Greed. They wanted Israel all for themselves. Greedy for reputation in Israel. Greedy for money in Israel. Greedy for power in Israel. They didn't want to give up their lives to help the the vineyard produce good fruit for the owner. No, they wanted to gorge themselves on the vineyard. Greedy for their own gain. These guys want the vineyard all for themselves. And they will ultimately kill the son in an effort to get it. Greed. And man... You just Think through this thing. The, 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 the son that they kill here is not just any sort of son. This son is the son of the owner. He's, he's the eternal son of God. He's God in human flesh. Kent Hughes said that the death of Jesus was not just a mere homicide. It was a deicide. A God-murder. Man, (laughs) you got to step back from this thing and think about it for a second. You know the crazy thing here when it comes to the murder of this son here in this parable? You know the crazy thing? This murder here was all part of the owner's plan. The owner knew the tenants would kill the son. The son knew the tenants would kill him. That's why the owner sent the son. That's why the son went to the vineyard to die. Son of God, Jesus, went to the vineyard of Israel in order that he might then be thrust out of the vineyard and be killed as a sacrificial lamb to pay the penalty for our sin in order that we might be forgiven through faith in him. And the death, of, the death of the beloved son here in this parable is all part of the owner's plan. It's all part of God's plan, his eternal plan of redemption. But, but listen, that doesn't mean here that God would be happy with the, den- the tenants who killed the son. Yep. God will use the sinfulness of these Jewish religious leaders. He'll he'll use the greed and and the hatred of of those tenants to, to accomplish his plan, the sacrificial death of his son. But God will not be happy with the tenants who kill his son. If you look at the end of verse 15 again, Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Because of the religious leader's murder of Jesus, God will come and destroy them. And I think Jesus was probably talking there about the destruction that would soon come to Jerusalem just a few years after his death and resurrection in AD 70 when the Romans eventually came in and burnt Jerusalem to the ground, killing many of the religious leaders. I think Jesus is probably looking out and seeing that destruction coming. But man, listen, it wasn't just the religious leaders. It wasn't just the tenants in Israel who were destroyed in AD. 70, for their rejection of Jesus. No, most of Israel was destroyed for Israel's rejection of Jesus. God's precious vineyard, this this choice vineyard that God had, had planted, had produced almost nothing but wild grapes. The entire nation, for the most part, rejecting prophet after prophet. The entire nation, for the most part, rejecting the Messiah, Jesus. And because of the nation's rejection of Jesus, the entire nation experienced the destruction of A.D. 70. Jesus knows here that it's coming. And Jesus says in verse 15 that in in addition to this destruction that would soon come, God's vineyard would now be given to others. And I think Jesus was simply saying there, that the kingdom of God would now be extended beyond the borders of Israel. Israel's failure to produce fruit would result in divine judgment. The kingdom of God would now in some sense be taken away from Israel. And the kingdom of God would now advance out in new and powerful ways to non-Jews. To Gentiles like you and me. And, and, and the vineyard of God... The the true vineyard of God would now consist not just of ethnic Jews, but of believers all over the world, whether Jew or Gentile. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this, I am the true vine. I am. The true vine. And believers all around the world are the branches of that true vine. Every person on this planet who is connected to Jesus by a living faith, whether Jew or Gentile, is now part of the one true vine, part of the one true vineyard of God. And this vineyard of believers This vineyard of believers around the world who are all united to Jesus by faith, all abiding in Jesus by faith. Do you know what this vineyard of believers does? It produces fruit. Lots and lots of God glorifying fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit produced In God's vineyard around the world. God's fruitful vineyard. Jewish and Gentile believers all over the world. Connected to Christ by faith. The true vine. So Jesus says that the owner in this parable will come and destroy the tenants who killed his son. And he will then give the vineyard to others. And when the crowd's standing around Jesus at this time, when, when they hear the end of the parable here, they cry out in verse 16, Surely not! God forbid! May this never happen. And, and, and I think they were probably responding there primarily to the idea of destruction. Now I'm sure they were shocked to hear that God's vineyard would now somehow be given to others. But I think they were spo- responding primarily there to this idea of destruction. And I say that because Jesus will respond to their shock in just a second by elaborating on the destruction. I think this crowd around Jesus on this occasion, I, I think they-, they cannot fathom. They cannot believe That God would truly come. God himself, the one who planted the vineyard, that he would actually come and destroy the tenants in the vineyard and destroy even the vineyard itself. Destroy the nation. Surely not, God forbid. May this never happen. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 17. But Jesus looked directly at the crowd and he said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when that stone falls on anyone, it will crush you. He's elaborating on the destruction that those who reject him will experience. And Jesus was quoting there with, with the, those comments about the stone and the builders. He was quoting there from Psalm 118. It's a, a psalm that prophesied about the Messiah. The disciples of Jesus have already quoted from Psalm 18 when they praised Jesus as he approached Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. The disciples praised Jesus saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That was from Psalm 118. And now Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 here when he talks about the stone and the builders. It's from Psalm 118 verse 22. And and the image in the psalm there of this stone being rejected by these builders, the the image there is that of a bunch of stonemasons or builders carefully examining some stones and selecting the best stones uh, for some building that they're constructing. They find one stone that looks like it's, it's marred in some way or it's just unworthy to, to be placed into this structure. So they cast it on uh, the rejection pile. But that stone is then ultimately brought back out of the rejection pile and actually established as the very cornerstone of the building. The most important stone, really the stone that holds the whole building together. And that verse, Psalm 18.22, was a prophecy about the Messiah. The verse was saying that the Messiah would somehow be initially rejected, cast aside by the builders. But the Messiah would ultimately be brought back and established as the cornerstone, the most important stone in man. When Jesus quotes, here, standing in the temple, quotes from that verse, Psalm 118, verse 22, in the temple, he's saying, that's me. That's me. I'm the stone. I'm the Messiah. And you look at me, you crowd, you, you look at me and you don't see much of anything maybe right now. You, you, you maybe don't see anything beauty, beautiful in me that you would desire. You maybe look at me and think I would not be worthy to be in any sort of building. And you builders, you, you religious leaders who have the responsibility of constructing God's building here in Israel, you tenants, you tenants, You tenants who have the responsibility of caring for God's vineyard here in Israel. You you builders, I know, will soon drag me out of the vineyard and cast me on the rejection pile. But I'm telling you right now that I will soon be resurrected out of that rejection pile. And I will then be exalted and established by God. As the very cornerstone in his building. The cornerstone of God's people. The cornerstone of the true vineyard. The cornerstone of God's church. And listen to me, you religious leaders. Listen to me, you people of Israel. Anyone who falls on that stone. Anyone who stumbles over me, the stumbling stone, as the book of Isaiah calls him, anyone who stumbles over me, the rock of offense, as the Bible calls him, anyone who stumbles over me and falls on me, that person will be broken to pieces. And when that stone falls on anyone, when I fall on anyone in judgment, that person will be crushed. I think both of those images there, the person broken on the stone and the stone crushing the person, I think both of those images refer to the destruction that will ultimately come to those who reject Jesus. There was an old Jewish proverb that was connected to uh, the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah as a stone. And this old Jewish proverb um, Proverbs said this, If a stone falls on a pot, woe to the pot. And if a pot falls on a stone, woe to the pot. In either case, woe to the pot. And if this stone named Jesus falls on a person, Woe to the person! Jesus says it will be crushed, and if a person falls on the stone, woe to the person! Jesus says it will be broken to pieces. In either, in either case, woe to the person. The consequences for rejecting the Messiah, the cornerstone, are devastating. Man, and Luke tells us then down in verse nineteen tells us that the religious leaders then sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But because they still feared the people, feared what the people would do if they took Jesus now, they waited just a little bit longer. So a, a, a parable there that lays out for us, really in no uncertain terms, the source of Jesus' authority. (laughs) Where did Jesus get His authority? Not from man, but from heaven. The owner sent Him. God the Father sent God the Son, and the Son came to die. Rejected by men, cast out by the builders, but then resurrected and exalted and established by God as the cornerstone, the rock on which everything is built, the rock that holds all things together. And listen, Jesus didn't just speak that parable there for those religious leaders back then. Jesus is speaking the parable to every last one of us here today. You know, God... God is saying to all of us, right there, God is saying to us in that parable that we will stand or fall based on what we do with the cornerstone. If you reject that stone outright, you'll have nothing to do with that stone. You will not put your faith in Jesus. will not give up your life for Jesus. And build your life on Jesus. And follow Jesus. Or, or if, you, if, you, if you just play games with the stone. And you say with your mouth maybe. That he's your master. When he's really not. If you reject the cornerstone. God is saying here you, you will fall. God, God is warning you here in love. Telling you here that all who reject the cornerstone will ultimately be broken to pieces and and crushed. Consequences are devastating, but man, if you receive the stone in faith, you receive the stone in faith, you, you give up your life for Jesus because he gave up his life for you. If you build your life on Jesus, if you truly follow Jesus in your life, God wants you to know here that you will stand. In 1 Peter 2.6, which is a quote from Isaiah 28, in 1 Peter 2.6, God says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious stone. And whoever believes in Him will not be put shame. On Christ, the solid rock you will stand. But all other ground is sinking sand. You will fall. You will stand or fall based on what you do with that stone. Let's pray God will give you the faith to receive Him. Build your life on Him. For the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, uh, that You would send Your own Son to a hostile vineyard that would kill him. And even in doing so, You were establishing Your vineyard. The one true vine on this earth, Jesus. Connecting people to Him in faith. The cornerstone upon which everything is built. The only solid rock in our universe. The Lord Jesus Christ. And I do pray, Father, that you would give us faith. Give us the grace to receive Christ and stand upon Him. At all times, Lord. We need your help. We thank you for it, Lord. And Father, I pray that those who have received Christ and do now stand upon Him, I pray, Lord, You would give us the grace to go tell others. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade others. God, help us to be motivated as a church body to go and boldly proclaim Christ the cornerstone upon which your life must be built in order to stand for all eternity. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.